This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Sam and I are welcoming you to yet another in our study from the book of Isaiah. This week and the last couple of weeks and one more to come, we've been looking at something called the Servant Songs, in which Isaiah prophetically describes God's servant. Um, and as we've talked about already, if you missed it last week, sometimes when Isaiah is talking about God's servant, he's, he's talking about the nation of Israel. Sometimes he's talking about somebody else, like the Emperor Cyrus of Persia. But in this case, in these four instances, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of everything that Israel should have done, Jesus will do. He's the perfect Israel in a way. But he's more than that. I think he's the perfect man, and that's really kind of the subject, in my opinion, of this week's servant song, which is Isaiah is prophesying regarding what manner of man the servant will be. And when we look at it, we're going to be able to see that Jesus perfectly represents a number of areas that we can model our own lives after because he is the gold standard. Um, Sam, would you agree with that broad generalization that this, this servant song is talking about the character of the servant? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, it, it walks you through a little bit of, of who Jesus is, what he did, um, and it starts getting into one of the, the adjectives that is most often used for the servant is the suffering servant. Mm-hmm. And so in, in this particular psalm, song, you get a glimpse into what some of that suffering looks like. Right. Um, some of the suffering that he's going to go through. But not just that. I mean, it starts from the beginning and all the ways that he becomes human, you know, from, from the beginning of his life all the way to the end and even the resurrection. Well, the servant song itself is verses 4 through 9, but we're going to do the entire chapter to give it some context. So let's begin with Isaiah chapter 50 here in verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Um, that's kind of an interesting verse to open up with. <laughs> yeah, that's intense. It's the Lord speaking. So basically what Israel is doing, and this was last week, if you remember, there was a portion where Israel responds, you've forsaken us, you've, you've done all this stuff to us, you've walked away from us. And so here's the Lord, and he's coming to them, and he's saying, oh, so you're saying that, that I've divorced you? I would like for you to produce this certificate of divorce. Like I, I want to know where in the world is it because I've never forsaken you. I've never pushed you away. I've never walked away from you. And so if you're saying that I've divorced you, produce the certificate. Where is it that I have said I'm done with you? Um, and then when it says, you know, they say oh, he has sold us off into, you know, the hands of others, he's like, okay, well, which of the creditors is it? You know, show me the bill of goods where I have said, you know what, I'm, I'm done with you. I'm selling you off into slavery, you know, permanently. And he's, he's calling Israel out and he's saying, you know, the reason why you're in you, the condition that you're in is you're the one who has pursued, you're the one who's committing spiritual adultery. 
I've never walked away from you. You've walked away from me. You've gone into the arms of anything and everything that could satisfy you for a moment. So you want to know why our relationship is broken is because you've walked away. If you want to know why you're finding yourself in slavery, it's not because I sold you into slavery. It's because you've given your heart to all these different idols that do nothing but enslave you to them. And indeed, through that, then nations come and and bring you into slavery because you've walked away from me and my protection. And so what what God is doing is he's saying, look, you're throwing these indictments at me. The reality is you're the one who's walked away from this marriage. You're the one who has given yourself over to these taskmasters. Mm. Um, it's it's sobering, you know, but the the Lord, I mean, oftentimes he could say the same thing to us, you know, where where we're going, where are you, Lord? And he's like, excuse me, <laughs> you know. You're you're the one who's given yourself into all these slaveries, you know. And I think sometimes we get uh, almost a little used to some of this language. Israel's done something bad, and as a result of what they did, their relationship with the Lord is harmed. But I I think that it's probably worthwhile for everybody to stop for just a second and think about what it is that that Israel did. To put it in human terms. If my wife, if every day my wife came in and poked me really hard in the chest or poured a cup of cold water over my head to wake me up in the morning or did something <laughs> like if she just did something like that, I would become irritated. That would be an irritating thing. But I wouldn't. Is it wrong that I think that would be funny? Yeah. I kind of <laughs> want video of it. Poking me in the chest and dumping cold water on my head. But the, but the point is, is that, is that those are, you know, like, okay, you know, sometimes we're, we're aggravating to like when I at Thanksgiving dinner think that passing gas is a compliment, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so the point is that we do things in the context of a relationship that are that can be irritating to the other person. What would be worse, but still not like the end of the world, would be if my wife paid me no regard at all. If she didn't really speak to me, she never thought about me. She just came and went and ghosted me. You know, that would be also mm-hmm. very hard. But if my wife found a man that she preferred to me, if my wife was constantly being faithless to me, if she was constantly running after other men, that would be something that destroyed the marriage. That would be something that I couldn't live with. I can live with the cold water, the poke in the chest. I could even live with her ignoring me because I keep thinking there's there's hope. But at that mm-hmm. moment when all of a sudden it's like I would prefer any man to you, that's where you, you know, and, and that's what's going on here is that Israel is saying yeah. to the Lord, not just, Hey, we did a really crap job building your altar. Sorry about that, God. They're mm-hmm. not, and they're not even saying, Oh, yes, sacrifices. We forgot to do those. No, what they're saying is we prefer the gods of this other people. Right. We prefer a God who wants us to sacrifice our children in the fire, burn our infants. We prefer that God yeah. to you. But and and in even simpler terms, you know, they they just want to satisfy themselves. They want to do everything on their own terms. They put themselves on the throne. I mean, and so if you go through the different prophets, I mean, you can look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, a lot of the minor prophets. The, these prophets repeatedly compare the great sin of God's people, Israel, to spiritual adultery. 
And the Lord is like, man, I, you don't even understand how intense my love is for you, how much I like, and my covenant with you is like a marriage. Like I am absolutely committed. Right. And you go and give yourself to anybody and everybody who's willing. And so that's why in verse two, you know, it says, you know, Israel is falling on all these hard times. They have these foreign oppressors coming. They're the, the status and, and the, the prosperity of the nation is beginning to fall apart. And the Lord is like, why? When I came, was there no man? Like, why when I called, was there none to answer? When I came to redeem you, when I came to help you, you weren't even interested. When I sent prophets to jump up and down and beg you to come back to me, you didn't even notice me. You didn't even give a glance my way. You've been, you've been just utterly disdaining me with everything you have. And now you're in absolute crisis and you're accusing me of divorcing you? You're accusing me of selling you into slavery? Like, have you not noticed that I've been calling and begging you to come back for generations? Um, it's, it's, it's powerful. We don't think of God as being emotionally invested because we think, well, he's God. He's bigger than emotions. But, you know, I, in Genesis 6, right before the flood, it's the first time that the Bible ever makes reference to somebody feeling emotional heartache, and it's the Lord. Mm-hmm. It says, my heart was filled with pain when he looked at the earth, you know, snub- snubbing its nose at him and walking away. It said his heart was filled with pain, and we don't tend to think of our God as loving us so much that our snubs could do that to him. But here in Isaiah, you have the Lord saying like, are you kidding? Like, do you know how much I love you? Do you know how much I've sought after you? And you turned away from me repeatedly? Like you you get a sense of how much he loves us and how how grieved he is yeah. when, when we say you've abandoned us because um, nothing could be further from the truth. Well, and, and by the same token um, – it's very common when people say, look, you know, I'm no worse than anybody else, or I'm not a bad guy. I haven't done, you know, I'm not some axe murderer or, or child abuser. I'm like, the, your relationship with the Lord is not just about you avoiding doing bad things. Yes, we should avoid doing bad things. I'm not saying, mm-hmm. oh, it's okay to be an axe murderer. Um, you would get arrested for that. <laughs> but, but it's, it's about the fact that, that, you do ignore the Lord, and it's about the fact that you mm-hmm. do chase after the gods of this world and forget him. We chase after the mm-hmm. gods that make us feel good. Um, and, and you're right. It is, it's a situation of a, of a violated relationship. It also seems like Israel Sam was, was sort of like um, almost insulting God here because he says mm-hmm. in verse 2, after he said, you know, why when I came was there, was there no man? Why when I called was there none to answer? He goes on and asks him some more questions. He says, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. So Israel, hmm. I think, was saying, well, maybe maybe God can't deliver us. That's why we're that's why we're going to these idols, because Yahweh can't deliver us. And he's like, yeah. I can't? Excuse me? Yeah. Yeah, and he's pointing to things that he has already done. 
and ma- and bringing about their deliverance in the past. If you remember, like the Nile turned to blood and all the fish died and they stank and the water. He's dried up the seas. He's already done these things and proven himself to Israel. And he's like, did, did you not come to me because – I'm incapable of redeeming. Let re- let me remind you of some powers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me remind you of what your forefathers have already seen. And in this beautiful poetry, Isaiah is masterful. You know, that last in, in verse 3 when he says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. You're going, what in the world is this talking about? Well, clothing the heavens in blackness, you know, just like he's talked about making the whole earth into a tabernacle that he stretches out his tent to cover the whole earth. Right. And it's saying, this is my dwelling place. Now what he's saying is, I clothe, because remember, we're talking about a marital covenant. He says, I clothe the heavens in blackness. Now what is the whole earth? A widow. You're, mm-hmm. you're acting like your God is dead, like you have nothing to do but mourn and grieve and sackcloth, which is something that you wore when you were in deep distress. You know, now sackcloth is their covering. And he is, he's gone from saying, like, do you realize, like, I never divorced you. I love you. I'm pursuing you. And, you know, in turning away from me, now all of a sudden the heavens are clothed with blackness and sackcloth is their covering. And it's showing how devastating everything is apart from him. Nothing works. All the stuff that they're trying to get to satisfy their hearts apart from him, it's only mourning. None, none of that fills. None of it is a love relationship that, that means anything. Ultimately, all of the things we chase after outside of him will ultimately let us down or the grave will swallow them up. Yeah. And if if you are setting your hopes on anything other than the Lord, you're a widow and you're just waiting at that moment is coming where everything you love is going to die. And so if that's the case, then I clothe the heavens and with blackness. Now the earth is shrouded in this blackness like a widow that's lost her husband in death. You're chasing after a, a, a different husband that husband is guaranteed to die. Yeah. So get used to your lot in mourning mm-hmm. without him. So then here after verse 3, um, now it, it sort of shifts – it shifts the speaker. Now now we shift to mm-hmm. the servant is speaking. And what's – I want you to notice the shift. Like he's just said – because what he's responding to is an Israel that says we have faced – all this victimhood, God, you have left us. You're the one who has imposed suffering on us. And now the servant speaks up. This is God the Son. This is Jesus Christ. This is him prophetically looking ahead to the mission that he is going to walk into. And it it really makes you think, okay, who's the victim here? Uh, who is the one who goes the extra mile for the sake of their loved one? Um, and you get a glimpse of how sacrificial the love of God is. Yeah. So verse 4 reads, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. So the first thing that I learned as I read this about the servant was that the servant was both learned and learning he was a, he was mm-hmm. the he was a teacher and he was a student and that was very true of jesus jesus uh was always 
teaching others, and Jesus was always receiving instruction and education from his father. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because I, I, one of the verses that I read sort of as a cross-reference to this and included with this week's personal worship was that passage in Luke when Jesus, after the Feast of the Passover, went into the temple. Um, and Mary and Joseph didn't know where he was. They, like three days out from the city, <laughs> they realized, yeah. whoa, Jesus isn't with us. So we turn around and we go back for them, and, and they find him in the temple and where he was listening and asking questions. And the, the people that were teaching in there, it said, were amazed at the questions that he asked. Mm-hmm. Um, and that passage concludes with something where it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with all men, uh, or, or in favor with God and man, I think. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, the idea is that, uh, that Jesus, you know, we, we understand he was fully God. Jesus was also fully man. Um, mm-hmm. and so Jesus went through the process of learning and being a student. And, and so he understands when we need to learn things. It's like, I've been there. I felt that he has felt and dealt with everything we have except sin. <laughs> he's, he's never had that part of it. But, you know, I just thought it was kind of cool because we all think, Oh, Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus was also a great student. You just get such a picture of the humility of God. I remember when I first came across that passage when I was, you know, a, a young Christian in my 20s, and I came across that passage that says, you know, that he grew in, in wisdom and understanding, and you're like, wait, well, hold on a minute. He's God. Right. How do, how do you grow in omniscience? Right. <laughs> you know? And the reality is, is it's like you have to realize that when he became a human, he set aside the privilege of some of these attributes. And in, in verse 4 here, it gives you the mission statement behind why the Lord set came in and set aside. Not only was he relating to humanity, right, but he was doing this for a particular reason. I love this. It says that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Mm-hmm. In other words, why why does the Lord open himself up to these weaknesses or these, you know, step down from this omniscience to where he actually has to learn like all of us? It's purely so that he can relate to us, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who's weary. He learns what it means to be weary. God in spirit is never weary, but God, when he becomes a man and he has to learn things and he has to to grow and he has to you know figure out how to navigate the world as a as a human being, it's wearying. And so that is such a comfort that when you look up and you pray to the Lord, you know, I'm worn out. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I should do or, or whatever the case might be. Like, think about this. Jesus partly had to, had to step into humanity and learn all this stuff. Why? So that he would know how to speak a word in season to those that are weary. He's learning how to sympathize. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how amazing our God is. He's not sure. just in heaven. You know, when you go to him and you're like, I can't do this anymore. I'm worn out. I, I, I'm, I'm desperate, God. You're not going, you're not talking to some distant, transcendent God alone who looks at you and goes, well, I'm infinite in my nature, so I don't know what it means to be weary. Right. No, you're, you're crying out to a God who knows exactly what it means to be weary and to grow and to learn. And he did all that so that he could sympathize with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a point I think that uh, that Paul makes in uh, Hebrews chapter four, 
uh, verses 14 to 16, uh, Paul says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, Paul's reassuring us that Jesus understands. <laughs> he really understands. He understands what we're going through because he went through it also voluntarily. You know, he came yeah. and experienced life as one of us so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, that is just such sacrificial love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it is, it is really interesting to me to think of, you know, the one that I praise, the one that I sing to, the one that I pray to awakened morning by morning. And had his devotions. He he listened to the voice of God. He mm-hmm. learned what it meant to walk in obedience and praise and submission to God the Father, morning by morning. Like he knows what it's like. He, you know, when 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 someone says, "Well, I don't have time for that," Jesus, the Son of God, you know, felt it felt it necessary to make time for that. Mm-hmm. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Um, that's just cool to think of God in the flesh doing morning devotions. Sure. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty good. That's a pretty good model right there. You know, and we have plenty of examples of, um, of Jesus showing extra knowledge. Like he knew things that people were thinking. He knew things that happened at a great distance. So he could access knowledge beyond human, human abilities, obviously. He, he was still God. And yet there are things where, for example, when the, they were talking about the second coming, what did he say? No man knows the times or the seasons or the day or the hour. I forget which one it uses, but basically no man knows when it is, but the father alone. The Father's right. reserved this knowledge for himself, and Jesus was, I think, saying to them that as I stand before you here, that's something I don't know. Yeah. And when you get to heaven, like Jesus now, is he? all of his divine attributes are restored in heaven. You know, yes. he is omniscient. You know, that's not, that's not up for debate. But one of, one of the things, like you talked about, in this earth, he took on limits in his humanity. Like when, whenever you see miracles, one of the things I'll challenge you to is you'll never find Jesus performing a miracle for selfish gain. Right. It is all, the miracle is always to uh, preach the gospel, to show some pattern that the Father wanted him to demonstrate for us on earth. It was always a selfless miracle. And the same is true for his access to wisdom, when it would help him to perform some selfless act of mercy or to be able to speak like the woman at the well, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your own. Like he sees into her reality. It's for the purpose of helping. It is not a selfish, you know, well, I'm I'm looking at reading the tea leaves or predicting stocks or betting on games or whatever. You know, like that's not the case. He he doesn't get insights for personal advantage. They're always to advance kingdom agendas. So what you're saying is that that if Jesus came today, he would choose not to win the Powerball. <laughs> I'm sure he probably would. Yeah, yeah, he would. He wouldn't want to. <laughs> he wouldn't want to model Powerball for us. One of the interesting things that also comes in verse five is when it says, "The Lord has opened my ear." 
and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Like I think the natural reading of that is, you know, just it's kind of a repetition that you see in Hebrew poetry that he's opened my ear to listen. Right. And I was not rebellious. I was totally obedient, nor did I turn away. And I think that's probably the right reading. But there were a couple of other commentaries that I read that made the suggestion that when it talked about the Lord God has opened my ear, that it's talking about an ancient practice again that masters used with slaves. And the way that it worked is if if you went into – ancient slavery wasn't like chattel slavery that we have today. You would serve someone for seven years to pay off a debt or to gain land or something like that. And at the end of seven years, you were presented with the option, do you love your master so much and do you find such comfort being under his care that you want to pledge yourself to be a servant to them for the remainder of your life? And if – it's in Exodus 21 or 22, I think. Um, but if you chose, you know what, I, I want to serve this household for the rest of my life, they would take an, an owl and they would cut a hole in your ear, and that was the sign that you were given over for the rest of your life as a servant. Now, this being a servant song, it's interesting. Like, the Lord God has opened my ear, which if it's talking about that, means that this servant, Jesus Christ, has said, I will give the rest of my life to serve the Lord God. Um, you know, if I was setting odds at which interpretation's correct, <laughs> I'd probably be 85% on the hearing you know, side of that and 15% on the, the sign of a, a, a lifelong servant. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, and so I just thought I would bring it up. It's, it certainly would be true if that were the interpretation. And it also kind of connects, I think, in one aspect then uh, to verse 6. Uh, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And, of course, this is a, a fairly famous – I mean, I, I've heard it quoted many times, Isaiah 56, talking about what the Messiah, what Jesus would suffer when he was captured by uh, Pontius Pilate and, and brought on trial. Um, mm-hmm. He says he gives his back to those who struck me. Well, he was, he was scourged. I mean, they whipped yeah. him across the back. And yeah. um, it was, it's a submissive thing. He gives his back to those who struck me. Um, th- it was his choice to go through that. Yeah, and this gets back to the contrast because here, remember, he's he is responding to an Israel that says, you have forsaken us. And here you have the servant saying, I've given my back to those who struck me and you know who it is who struck him. You know, it's it's the very people that are accusing God of leaving. It's it's the nation of Israel. It's his own people. It's the covenant people of God, right? That are are looking at this servant who will who will be the ones who demand that he be put to death and through the Romans carry it out. Um, it's it's so fascinating to go back and read history at, at what this is pointing us to when you when you come across it in the story of the Passion that you find in the Gospels where Jesus is being scourged. I remember the first time I'd ever come to realize how vicious it was was in watching The Passion of the Christ, and that is one of the most difficult scenes of the whole movie. If, if the movie moves you at all, some people don't like the movie. I understand that. 
but you just see the Romans and it's it's very accurate where they would take these, you know, like cat of nine tails and they would, you know, put balls or iron balls in the in the leather straps that come off from this whip and they would put shards of bone and glass in there so that when it was hitting you, it was not only breaking ribs and bones and everything else, but these shards would get stuck in you and then they would rip out your skin. I mean, really unbelievable torment. Um, you read Eusebius and he's talking about how you would be able to see the person's innards when they were done being flogged by the Romans, that it was so vicious and it, all over your body, not just your back. So to hear you know, the servant who you know, is inspiring these words of something that's going to happen 700 years later and to say he gave his back to those who would strike him um, – you know, and, and that's it's Jesus didn't get forcibly arrested, and he wasn't going to these tortures. Going, oh no, no, no! If only I could get away. Right. He went to these tortures and and faced them out of love. He gave his back. You get to Isaiah fifty three that we'll be talking about next week, and it'll say, "By his stripes," which is talking about this the the whipping and the scourging. By his stripes, what we're healed. We. Are healed. Yeah. We are healed. And so here's God talking about you want to talk about covenant faithfulness. This is the length that I'm willing to go for you. Like, do you recognize, do you think I've forsaken you? No, 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 no. I will give it all for you. And I mean, when you think about what it means, I gave my back to those who struck me, um, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I didn't hide my face from shame and spitting. When he's on trial before the Sanhedrin and they're coming up and spitting in his face and punching him and slapping him, I mean just think of the contempt that you have to have for someone to spit in their face. And this is – he's like, I didn't hide my face from that. Do you, you know how humiliating it is to have to go through all this? I didn't hide my face from your spit. Like, I'm not going to walk away from you because when it says, you know, I didn't hide my face from your spitting would mean I'd have to turn away from you. And I will endure your spit, but I will not turn away from you. The The level of love is just – it's it's un, it's unbelievable. It's it's humbling. It's, it's wild. It's almost like you want to say, God, you're getting a bad deal. Don't do this. You're too good for us. Um, and yet he, in some sense he talks about how he delights in doing it. You know, because he knows what he's winning, and you're that precious to him. You know, we're told in uh, uh, in Matthew in when in the story about the Garden of Gethsemane, when uh, Peter pulls his sword out and tries to defend Jesus. Um, Jesus said, "Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword." Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? Um, so, it, twelve legions—we're talking about <laughs> twelve legions of angels—and we read in the Old Testament how one angel wipes out one hundred and fifty thousand people in an army. <laughs> so. Yeah. Twelve legions of angels would have been enough to just exterminate planet Earth. That just connected. <laughs> and but but I say that because I think that what we need to to keep in mind is that when Jesus was going through all these things, when he was suffering the indignity of people spitting on him, when he was suffering the agony of his back being whipped and these things, with every blow, with every 
rip out of the hair with every crack of the whip across his back, he is restraining himself from calling down 12 legions of angels. At any time, he could have said, that's enough. I'm done. That's enough. (laughs) If he'd lost his temper once, and yet he didn't, you know, it's not like if you or I found ourselves caught up in the wheels of justice, we could get squeezed like a toothpaste tube. And there's nothing that we could do other than just put the toothpaste on the counter. But in Jesus's case, he went through each step of this, each spat in his face, each whip on his back, all those indignities, one after another after another. Each time one of those happened, he had to say, God, you know, Father, not my will, but yours. I, you know, mm-hmm. I know why I'm here. I know what I'm doing. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, he he's just so good. And John 10, when he's talking about being the good shepherd and he's talking about no greater love has any man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's a line in there where he says, you know, the reason the father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Right. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And he's going to say something similar, I think, to Pilate when he kind of corrects Pilate like, you have no authority to do anything to me. Like, holy cow, can you – you know, it's it, – but that's what he's saying is mm-hmm. I'm doing this willingly. Yeah. No one is making me die. No one is making me give my back. No one is making me endure the spit in the face even though with the, you know, the eyes of the flesh, it sure looks that way. But he knows all this is coming. Yeah. He, you know, as a boy, when you're talking about when he's 12 years old at the temple, mm-hmm. and he's he's amazing the scribes and the people in the temple, you know, as he was growing up and he understands his messianic identity, he reads these things in Isaiah 50, in Isaiah 53, in Psalm 22 that are just so clearly talking about the the sufferings of Jesus, and he knows that's me. I'm going to have to face that one day. He, I mean, can you imagine growing up and knowing that this is written about you? He, he did. I do this all the time where I'm like, let me, I put myself in that situation. For me to put myself in that situation, it wouldn't be like Jesus because Jesus did not – the one thing that Jesus did not have is he did not have within him pride. Jesus is mm-hmm. the ultimate in humble. I mean, that's just – Everything about him is it, everything is done humbly. If I was sitting in the temple at twelve years old, and I'm hearing these words written, and I'm like, "Wait, I wrote that. That was pretty good, you know. <laughs> Check me out, you know." And Jesus never did that. <laughs> that is interesting because it's reminding him of a conversation that happened in heaven between the Father and the Son that Isaiah recorded seven hundred years. Oh yeah, I remember saying that. I remember you know? that. Yeah, you know that is. That's kind of a cool thought. The Hey, if you need somebody who looks at Scripture and thinks about it from some out-of-the-way, like <laughs> weird, up-in-the-stands, looking-down-from-left-field sort of approach, ask Mark what he thinks. Because if anyone's going to have a weird take on this, he will. And maybe it'll be interesting. So, <laughs> but yeah. you know what? So long as it's held tightly within the confines of Scripture, some of the best thinking comes out of imagining stuff like that. I sure. love that. Sure. So – we have the example of the servant as the student and as the teacher, and now we have the example of the servant as one who patiently endures this suffering. Verse 7 gives us another glimpse of the character of the servant when it talks about the servant's ability 
to be able to keep perspective, to look forward or look mm-hmm. ahead. Uh, verse 7 reads, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. When I read the, that passage, the first thing that occurred to me was uh, the verses Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where uh, Paul writes, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, dismissing, scorning the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The, you know, we were just talking about what Jesus went through and how at each step of his trial and his suffering and all these unjust things that are happening to him, he's choosing to submit one more step, one more step. I'll sub, yeah, yes, one more step. So he's going through this, this, this process. And you're thinking, how can you do something like that? And one thing that we're told about Jesus is that he had before him this joy and the joy that he had before him is us. It's his bride. It's his church. It's the relationship. It's buying us out of sin. We who would be otherwise lost. He's like, I see you as a redeemed people. I see you perfected. I see you completed. It says he's the author and finisher. And and that word finisher means completion or perfected. It's like he sees us as what we will be if he goes through Hmm. this for us and that's the motivation that he had mm-hmm. that's from so again i keep that. i keep saying that's remarkable that's really remarkable mm-hmm. uh, you know um it is the it is so other focused it's so looking to other people it's like he is entirely focused on what he's doing for us and yeah. that, that's just that's wonderful and he's got an eternal perspective. He it's he knows what he's winning, but he also knows who holds his future. Right. And so you know he's saying you know I I can set my face like flint just to be you know what they would strike flint to get you know sparks or to sharpen things. I mean it was you you, you never were gentle with flint. Right. And so he's I've set my face like flint just to be pummeled, and I'm not going to be put to shame. Why? Because I trust my future. To the sovereign Lord. He helps me and I know in the end I will not be disgraced. There's just a confidence to go and face this suffering because he knows that in the eternal courts, the only ones that matter, the only ones that last, the Lord holds him. And, you know, people who are the atheist who know almost nothing about Scripture, who totally misrepresent Scripture – one of the arguments is that, you know, God the Father, I forget which who it is, if it's Christopher Hitchens or Dawkins or which one, probably all of them, but they accuse God of being, you know, a spiritual child abuser. How could you do this to your son as if Jesus came into the world and was going, no, daddy, no. That is so absolutely asinine and in such an infuriating argument to me because here you have the father and the son 700 years before Jesus stepped foot in this world having this conversation. Yes. You know, yeah. and and the, and the divine counsel that happens long before Jesus steps into this world as a human. They're all they've already had this conversation. It was agreed upon with the Father and the Son what the divine plan would be. Mm-hmm. And here 
you see Jesus saying, I totally am in. I'm not going to be disgraced. I will not be put to shame. He who, you know, it goes on. He knows what he's going to win. He's excited about what he's going to win. So the cross, it's not like Jesus goes to the cross going, oh my goodness, I, this is not what I anticipated when I agreed to come. Like there's no, this is, it's asinine to yeah. the infinite level for some of these atheists to claim that this is spiritual child abuse. This was a covenant long before Jesus became a man that he agreed to, to win you. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing. It is. I think that the next verse, I think that verse 8 um, shows me the confidence that the servant has in the judge in this case. Um, verse 8 says, he is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Um, and mm-hmm. the, the justifies me in that sense. The servant didn't need forgiveness for sins. <laughs> the servant didn't need justification like we need justification. No, what the servant, what justifies me there is talking about is that the one who is the ultimate judge, that's God, the Father, would judge, would say to the servant that you're vindicated, you're absolved, you, you know, mm-hmm. you've done right. Um, and his confidence in that judge, it's a little bit it's, it, it gives a, an answer here where the servant is being a little bit kind of almost defiant. And I say kind of almost. He is being a little bit defiant. He's like, who's going to contend with me? <laughs> For sure. The judge says, I'm right. Who's going to contend with me? Come stand in front of me. Come here. Come on. Get in front of me. Tell me to mm-hmm. my face. Um, and it's interesting because it's, it's a very different servant. We just saw in verse yeah. 6 where he's like – I don't hide from the shame and spitting. I give my back to those that struck me. Now, on the flip side of it, you know, after I, – I, I keep thinking about this too, you know, weird things Mark thinks of. But I keep thinking about this. I was like, <laughs> do you notice how after the resurrection, Jesus didn't let anybody lay hands on him? <laughs> you know, there wasn't anybody dragging Jesus away after the resurrection. It's like, all right, I've gone through this and I have been judged right by my father. Don't touch me. <laughs> so, and I, and, and see now as I say that, I'm giving, I'm making it sound like Jesus was in some sense arrogant, but it was, again, it was out of probably mercy for them as to what would happen. But I, I yeah. still feel like. I still have to go. I've always saw that as like, I still have to go. Don't get used to me being in the flesh with you. And I think that's probably the the more correct because that's the more that that's the more Jesus thing. The more Jesus thing is to be thinking about <laughs> is to be thinking about them. It's like I don't yeah. want you to become dependent on me. This is now your time. This is you know you're gonna greater things you will do than even I did. You know the rest of this world is waiting to hear you down through the millennia is waiting for this gospel. That's what I'm giving to you. You know that kind of a thing. So I, I do think it was being he's being merciful in that respect. I think that's the correct read on it. But still, I'm like there's a sense that the servant here is being a little defiant. Like, hey, mm-hmm. the judge and says I'm okay. So I'm going to ask you a question. We didn't rehearse this. What is your favorite book of the Bible? Romans. What is your favorite chapter in that book? Uh, probably chapter eight. 
Yep, it's the best. I love chapter eight. But Paul and there chapter is therefore eight, now no condemnation right. to those you know who where are I was in going. Christ Jesus. Yep. <laughs> you knew it, but but anyway, that's how it begins. But he takes the logic of this verse eight. You know, he who vindicates me is near. Who then can bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who's my accuser? Let him confront me. That's speaking of Jesus because God has so vindicated Jesus, and the Apostle Paul then takes that particular argument and says, okay, that was for Jesus, but now given what Jesus has done for you, you now can claim that argument. So in verse 31, listen to what he says just for three verses here. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Mm -hmm. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then he asked the question here, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. And so – by extension, Jesus is here looking <laughs> at all of this, what he's going the torment he's going to face. And Jesus is like, who brings the charge? And now that we're in Christ, guess what we get to say? Who brings the charge? Against us. Who, who can accuse yeah. me of anything? It's God who justifies. And when Jesus went to the cross, he justified me. And now there are no charges left because they've all been paid. Yeah. I stand blameless now in the courts of heaven, and I can make this same claim. It's wild, the gifts that we get with the gospel. Freedom, big time. Mm-hmm. You know, and chapter 8 comes after chapter 7 where Paul describes – now we're going to get into a Romans Bible study – but where Paul describes – I knew that was a danger when I brought it, it up. I it knew is, it was a danger. It is. You know, <laughs> it, Paul goes through chapter 7 in one of the most – I think one of the most remarkable dialogues that he has in any of his writings where he talks about this struggle between – his flesh and his mind. And he's talking about the, you know, this back and forth that goes on. And when he gets to the end of the chapter, he's like, and I'm sorry, it's King James is how I memorized it. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. That's how chapter seven ends. Jesus is going to deliver him from his flesh. And then chapter eight starts off with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I was like, that, you, you have to realize that, <sighs> you have, yeah, you have to realize these chapter breaks were put in long after Paul wrote it, right? It's all one mm-hmm. continuous thought with him, but that's a chapter break that I kind of like <laughs> because mm-hmm. it lets you stop and say, think about that for a minute. Yeah. And now let's you come back to this, you know? Yeah. So. But that we get, we get to claim verse eight right alongside Jesus. We do. And Paul gives us express permission to do so. Right. It's really incredible, actually. Yeah. We've done nothing. <laughs> We've done nothing to be able to say verse 8. He's done everything to be able to say verse 8. So we have the servant who is the student and the teacher, the servant who is the patient, enduring, one who patiently endures the suffering and the, and the, the shame. We have the servant who's demonstrating confidence based on being judged right by, the, you know, the Lord God. And and now in verse 9, it's an interesting thing because now the servant is going to talk about, I think, his the fact that this is an eternal state, an eternal situation. Verse 9 says, surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. 
in writing about it in, th- in the study notes for this week's personal worship, I said, when you wear something long enough, it grows threadbare. Everywhere you go, you rub off a little bit of that garment, leaving tiny bits of it clinging to every chair and swept away in the water at each washing. By its use, it is gradually and inevitably destroyed, even while fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. Should we seek to protect them by storing them so they won't wear out, they will be destroyed by external forces like the moth. No matter how long the grind of this life takes, it is an immeasurably tiny flicker compared with eternity. God's servant gives evidence of having an eternal perspective, and so should we. Um, that's what I took <laughs> from his statement about the, about the clothing, because whether you, whether you use clothing as you're supposed to, which is I wear it every day and then it's going to wear out or, or if you try to pack it away and you know what? You're like, Oh, well, that was moths back in, you know, ancient times. Well, I've got a hermetically sealed closet now, right? That the archaeologists <laughs> will dig up 10,000 years from now and open it up and there will still be nothing but dust inside that thing. We're getting back to the all flesh is grass and it withers and fades away. Like you, you, you can't escape it. You know, that's that philosophers since the beginning of humanity have tried to answer the riddle of death and no one can escape it. No one. All of us are going to wear out. All of us are going to wither and fade. And man, if there was one question that would be worth devoting the rest of your life to, is how in the world can I find refuge from death that will swallow up everything I am and all that I love? And I would think that it would be smart to devote a little bit more energy than we do as a culture to answering the bigger questions of life Mm -hmm. um, that we tend to ignore because they're uncomfortable topics. But this is a guarantee. Like this – I'm not saying something controversial. There is no faith under heaven that I know of that says that this temporal world is not going to end with death and destruction and the sun burning out or whatever. You know, it's all – it's all doing exactly what he says here. It's wearing out like a garment. We should be looking for a new source of life. Yeah. It's the one thing that's at the end of everything else. You know, you and I have talked about uh, pride and humility as being the basis for every sin and every virtue. It's like every Mm -hmm. sin eventually can get tracked back to pride. It's got something to do with what I want, my appetites, me, 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 and humility is the basis for every virtue. It's like all the things that I might do that are virtues come from a position of me being humble. So, and I realize now somebody out there is going, I got to think of one thing that doesn't fit that. You may be able to. (laughs) However, everything that I can think of in terms of a sin or a virtue goes to pride and, and humility. Well, the other thing is that the one thing that is the intractable fear that is at the, why do people fear getting very sick. Why? Well, it's because they might die. Why do you fear, um, you know, driving on a dangerous road where there's lots of accidents? Is it because of the fact that it might be scary all the way? Is it the fact that your your butt cheeks might get numb in the seat of the car? Is it you might? <laughs> no, it's that you might die if it's a dangerous situation. The point is that death is the fear. Death is the enemy that everybody fears. It's at the end of all of these things. We fear sickness. We fear accident. We fear, we fear all these things because they lead to death. And from a Christian perspective, I just want to say that once you have this death question answered, 
everything else loses its power a little bit. Doesn't mean I want to get sick tomorrow and, and die from some horrible disease, nor does it mean I would like to drive around the block and get squashed by a semi tonight. Those are, that's ridiculous to say that I would want those things. I don't want those things. Mm-hmm. I want to grow old and see grandchildren and die peacefully in my sleep. I think all of us, you know, want that. But mm-hmm. the fact is that when you take away, it's Paul that says, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? The hope of the resurrection? Yeah takes that all away death you got nothing on me Uh, and it doesn't make it you know like we we approach death and death is even for some christians it's still scary and that's natural because death is unknown like you 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 can read about it you can you can do all kinds of stuff to try to get more familiar with it but the fact is until you experience death you have no idea what it's like and that's why when you think about death when you think about resurrection you're You'll never know death before you get there, but you can know the God who meets you there. And what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. You know, he is, he's, he is the source of all life. He is the one who infuses uh, us with eternal significance and, and brings us back. He's the one who, you know, takes our natural garments that are wearing out and infuses his infinite eternal power into them, the power of the resurrection so that we have this everlasting inheritance, which is, you know, amazing to think about. You know, I, I, I've mentioned this before, but, you know, almost a month ago, my mom was given one month to live. This weekend, I was sitting right beside her and we were talking about, you know, what she wanted to have done with her ashes, what song she wanted sung at her funeral. And I mean, it's just this unbelievably bizarro world where I'm looking at this woman who I love with so much of my heart, you know, and have for my whole life. You know, she's she's been loving me longer than any other person on the planet. And to be looking at her thinking, oh, my gosh, this 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 tent that you're living in, this flesh and body is going to be dust by the time we get to celebrate your next birthday, or birthday September 26th. It's, it's a haunting thought. I hate it. I hate death. I hate cancer with everything in me. It makes me hate it even more. But I tell you, in a, in a very strange way, it makes me fall in love with my Savior even more because he is the one who will meet her there, and I know what he's like. Right. I know his character. And so I can I, – I have no comfort with death. I'm, I'm not – I'm not agreeable to it at all. I hate it. I don't like it. I feel like it's an invader. It makes me angry and sad all at the same time. But at the same time, I can look at my Savior who hated it more than I did, who entered into this world to defeat it so that it couldn't claim my mom permanently. Mm -hmm. And now because of my Savior, I can look at my mom and say there are no final goodbyes. There Mm -hmm. are none. You know? And, you know, her body right now is wearing out like a garment really quickly. But she's about to inherit a garment that is imperishable. Right. So now here in in verse 10, which is uh, continuing past the servant song, the speaker, I think, Sam, changes again. Verse 10 says, Mm -hmm. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. And rely upon his God. Look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Um, so somebody's getting in trouble here. <laughs> but, but are we shifting back to 
God, the, this is Jehovah God the Father speaking again? Correct. So this is, yeah, you've just heard the servant, you heard the servant song, and now this is turning the, the focus, and it's now looking to us and saying, okay, now what are you going to do about what you just heard? You just heard how much God loves you. You've heard how much he's pouring himself out. You've heard the character of this servant. And so now the question is, who among you fears the Lord? Like you, you've been accusing me of, of divorcing you and selling you off into slavery. Well, now you've seen the character of your Savior. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of the servant that you've just heard? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust the name of the Lord. And so the theme of light is huge in Isaiah. You know, he's a light to the Gentiles. And so he says, trust in the name of the Lord. That's your light and rely upon his God. And then notice he turns his attention to a negative example, and the beginning of chapter 51 is a positive example. And so let's go through them real quick. You'd read this, and it says, all, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, you walk in the light of your fire. So he said, like, you have this Savior, this servant, who is the light of the world. He is this, this glorious radiant sun that brings light to a whole dark world, and yet there are those who reject him and they light their tiny little torches, and they have, you know, they're surrounded with just little sparks that they've kindled, right? And it's still dark. Like, even that light that you've created only lights around you, and it only lights dimly, and eventually even that is going to go out. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you reject the light of the world in favor of your little torch and sparks, he finishes, you will lie down in torment. That's not going to go well for you. You're, gonna, you're, you're like the garment. You're going to wear out. Everything is going to go bad for you. You're going to meet destruction. And then in 51, we're going to do the first three verses here. He turns and pleads with his audience, mm. don't do that. Chase the light of the world. He says, uh, chapter 51, verse 1, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. So God wants to restore what we had in the garden. I mean, we've talked about that so many times, is that when you look at the Garden of Eden, you see how God wanted things to work. Mm -hmm. And so he's beginning, the first verse of chapter 51 is, remember your beginning. Do you remember the dignity that I bestowed on all of humanity from the moment that you were made? And he uses, you know, the the imagery, like the the idea of quarries, you know, Mm -hmm. where you're pulling rocks out of them. But he said, you know, basically what he's saying is from the beginning, you were meant to be in my image. You were meant to be in relationship with me. And then he says, look to Abraham. Well, why does he say that? Abraham was given a promise that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky, and he had to wait 25 years for God to make good on that promise. He says, look to Abraham, your father, like remember his promises. I called him alone. I blessed him. I increased him. I made good on my promises. 
And then he basically says, trust me when I tell you that I'm going to restore what seems like this this inheritance that keeps withering away, this desolate inheritance that we talked about last week, that everything seems to be just becoming a wilderness. It all seems to go to desert where there's no life, there's no flourishing, there's no there's no <laughs> harvest. And he's saying he will comfort all of the waste places. He will make the wilderness like Eden, the desert like the garden of the Lord. And I love that promise because we can look at our world and think, my goodness, like is there any <laughs> is there any life? Is there any hope? Is there any beauty? It really feels like a wilderness, like waste places, like a desert. And what is God's promise? He's going to bring the comfort. And he's going to transform all the mess. For those who seek him in Christ, we will find that all the mess, all the desert, all the pain, all the tears are ultimately going to be transformed into beauty. And we are going to be restored to Edenic paradise. God is preparing a place for us even as we speak that will make Eden look like a Holiday Inn Express. It is going. <laughs> it is going to be amazing. Partly because, as as First Corinthians says, we're no longer going to be made in the image of the man of dust, with the ability to fall. This time, we will be remade in the image of the heavenly man, yeah. because of what this servant has done for us. Mm-hmm. We will never, ever, ever, ever be able to lose Eden again, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. And in those days, joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. There's going to be lots of singing, lots of celebrating. When God looks at those who reject the temptation to live by our little torches and sparks, (laughs) but to grab hold of the light of the world and trust him to redeem all the wastelands that we find in our life. And to make them into something far greater than Eden. That's the hope. Well, that is a good word. Uh, and I think it's the one that uh, we're going to end on. Folks, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us this week, uh, that you've appreciated our study of these servant songs. We have one more to go. Uh, so you, do, you don't want to miss that. Uh, if you'd like to hear the messages that are preached on Sunday mornings that go along with this also, this is all part of, you know, our church has its personal worship daily devotional. We do this podcast each week, and then on Sunday, a sermon is preached from the same text. So all of these things work together. And if you're not part of Rio Vista Community Church, you're not getting all of these things uh, delivered to you, you can find all of them on our smartphone app and at our website. The website is riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. You can find personal worship there. You can find all of the messages there in our sermon library. You can find the the podcast. All the podcast episodes that we've done can be found there also. Or you can get all of that by getting our Rio Vista Community Church app on your iPhone or Android. It's available for both iOS and Android. Completely free. Just go to the app store of your choice and search for Rio Vista Community Church, and you'll find that there. Uh, you can also hear this podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. So wherever it is that you find fine podcasts, ours will be there also. Sam and I will be back next week with another in our series from the book of Isaiah, and we look forward to seeing you then. 
We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.